For those in power in the state of South Carolina, the November 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln was the final straw. Convinced that he and the Republican Party were certain to forever change their economic, political, and cultural world, it was time to act. And so, even before the election year was out, the Palmetto State initiated the process to do what today few Americans, if any, would even begin to consider. For this episode, the story of South Carolina's momentous and its consequences would demonstrate calamitous December decision, secession. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was a Thursday, and in Charleston, South Carolina, the hometown Mercury advertised steamers bound for Helena, Georgetown, and Wilmington. Among its advertisements, Dr. Schallenberger's Fever and Ague Pills, Dr. Sweet's Infallible Liniment for Horses, Bachelor's Hair Dye, the original and best in the world, and Sanford's Liver Invigorator. From the edition, Charlestonians also learned Christie's Minstrels planned a serenade for the evening of the 21st, and perhaps many read and pondered the curiously timed printing of a poem entitled, Living Alone. There was news from the Crisis Committee in Washington City, word from concerned European nations, and great detail about yesterday's action, the third day's proceedings, at the convention of the people of South Carolina. That story took up five columns, and a sign of the times, extra drill was announced in the paper for the Charleston Riflemen, the 1st Regiment of Artillery of South Carolina Militia, the Sumter Guards, and the Carolina Light Infantry. Oh, the Mercury also included a reprint from the Chicago Democrat, and again, curiously timed, from the pen of obviously an incensed Republican who was clearly anti-Southern. His message read, You have sworn that if we dared to elect such a man, Mr. Lincoln, you would dissolve the Union. We have elected him, and now we want you to try your little game of secession. Do it if you dare. Later in the copy, the chivalry will eat dirt. They will back out. The best they can do is to bully, brag, and bluster. These knights of the sunny south are just such heroes as Sancho Panza was. They are wonderful hands at bragging and telling fantastical lies. But when it comes to action, count them out. 772 miles north of Charleston, the December 20th edition of the New York Times advertised the play The Seven Sisters, starring Laura Keene, and was to be staged at her theater. There were articles entitled The Crises of the Union, Latest Reports from the South, Fall in the Prices of Slaves, and Keene Cotton, England, Looks for a Supply Without Dependence Upon the United States. Tennessee Senator Andrew Johnson's pro-union speech was reproduced, 
There were dispatches from the federal capital, brief reports about southern states, and a printed manifesto from, as the editor put it, a man who knows his duty, but who makes his mind not to perform it. That man happened to be the 15th president of the United States, James Buchanan. It was all so surreal. The tension, the uncertainty, and Christmas only five days away. 205 miles south in the federal capital, the social season was in earnest and would be all the way through New Year's Eve, yet the usual rituals and festivities were out of sync, out of place, for futures were cloudy. Such were the events of Thursday, December the 20th, 1860, the day South Carolina seceded from the Union. This was not the first time the state had charted such a course. For 32 and a half years earlier, in 1828, Congress passed the so-called Tariff of Abominations, a political attempt to alienate the middle states from John Quincy Adams in the coming election had gone horribly awry. Those that year working for the election of Andrew Jackson hoped that without woolens included in the tariff, New Englanders would not vote for it and therefore anger the middle states who wanted protection for raw products and iron. Jacksonians reasoned New Englanders would be blamed for the defeat of the bill and that would keep middle state votes from falling into Massachusetts native John Quincy Adams' column. Surprisingly, New Englanders voted for the tariff, saying they supported protection as a principle. Signed May 19th, the outrageously high tariff of 50% prompted, in particular, Southern reaction. Seven months later, South Carolina meeting in Columbia, eight resolutions were adopted. In essence, they proclaimed the tariff oppressive, unjust, and unconstitutional. Legislatures from Georgia, Mississippi, and Virginia followed suit. Added to those resolutions was a document entitled The South Carolina Exposition and Protest. It was written, but not signed, by the then Vice President of the United States, John C. Calhoun. His ghost-written document expressed the doctrine of nullification by a single state, Curiously, at that time, there was enough union sentiment in South Carolina which kept the state from calling a statewide convention. But four years later, that is precisely what happened, when on July the 14th, 1832, the Tariff of 1832 was passed. Though the rate was lowered to 45%, it wasn't enough to satisfy nullification leaders. And this time, they were bolstered when October 1832 state elections revealed that many unionists in the state had moved to the state's rights position. Now there were enough votes to call for a state convention, and it convened November the 19th. Five days after that convention met, and with only a handful of unionists in attendance, the tariffs of 1828 and 1832 were proclaimed null and void by a vote of 169 to 26. The convention also made clear any show of force by federal authority would justify an act of secession. No question to Andrew Jackson and Unionist, this was a direct challenge to the federal government. 
Enforcement of the law is the constitutional responsibility of the president. And at that time, the United States had a chief executive who would do just that. On December the 10th, 1832, Andrew Jackson issued his proclamation to the people of South Carolina. He called nullification an impractical absurdity and asserted the supremacy of the federal government. South Carolina countered with yet another proclamation, interestingly on December the 20th of that year. Not willing to just stand by and watch, Calhoun resigned the vice presidency on the 28th so that he might return to South Carolina and lead the fight. Three months later, on March the 2nd, 1833, Congress passed the Force Bill, which gave President Jackson blank check power to enforce the two tariffs. Yet other forces were at work. The man behind the Missouri Compromise some 13 years earlier, Kentucky Senator Henry Clay, was trying to steer a middle course. Falling, coincidentally, on the same day the force bill was passed, the Compromise Tariff of 1833 was signed. South Carolina accepted this olive branch measure. And on March the 18th, and as a parting shot, declared the force bill null and void. And issued it the same day South Carolina's nullification convention adjourned. Both sides claimed victory. The fundamental issue? Federal versus states' rights. The founding fathers wrestled with it at the Constitutional Convention. And after the document became the law of the land, the issue reared its head in June and July of 1798 when Congress passed a series of eyebrow-raising measures. The Naturalization Act, which increased an alien's wait time for citizenship from 5 to 14 years. The Alien Act, which gave the president the power to order out of the country anyone he deemed dangerous to the public. The Alien Enemies Act, which in a declared war allowed the president to arrest, imprison, or banish aliens subject to enemy power. And the Sedition Act, which incredibly prohibited the publishing of any false, scandalous, and malicious writings against the Congress and president. These extraordinary measures moved Thomas Jefferson and James Madison into action. Jefferson, acting on behalf of Kentucky and Madison for Virginia, the two in November and December of 1798 authored the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. Both states declared firm attachment to the Union, yet also put forth a troublesome precedent, states' rights, nullification, and secession. All that established, and it would not be long before that precedent would be advanced. Fear created by the Louisiana Purchase and tired of presidents from Virginia, a northern confederacy consisting of the five New England states plus New Jersey and New York was discussed. Its playing out and failure to materialize actually led to the July 11, 1804 Burr-Hamilton duel at Weehawken, New Jersey. Yet, the seeds of sectionalism sown, the threat of secession was again center stage in the 1860 election with Abraham Lincoln's nomination. And South Carolina once again, just as in 1832, took the defiant lead.
The Charleston Mercury branded Lincoln the beau ideal of a relentless, dogged, free-soil border ruffian, a vulgar mobocrat and southern hater. A Georgia editor noted that rather than submit to such humiliation and degradation as the inauguration of Lincoln, the South would see the Potomac crimson and human gore, and Pennsylvania Avenue paved two fathoms deep with mangled bodies. On the 5th of November, 1860, the South Carolina legislature was called into special session by fire-eater Governor William Gist, who schemed for secession. Anticipating a Lincoln victory, he called the body together that day to choose electors and arrange for measures of secession when the Republicans won. The next day, the 6th, was election day, and by nightfall, Illinois had gone Republican. Crucial swing state Indiana followed. As expected, the northwestern states fell into the Lincoln column. Around midnight, Pennsylvania and New York showed Republican leads. The final tally revealed that although Lincoln received less than 40% of the popular vote, electorally he had a president-making 180 votes from 18 free states. With the result, South Carolina diarist Mary Boykin Chestnut noted what was obvious when she wrote, We are divorced, North and South, because we have hated each other so. Despite the fact that one-third of the states currently in the Union at that time did not even include his name on the ballot, Abraham Lincoln became the 16th president, and Chestnut's native South Carolina made good its pre-election threat. On Friday, November the 9th, and rolling through both its legislative houses, South Carolina called for a state secession convention which would convene the middle of December in Columbia. And so it would be that on Monday, the 17th of December, that convention met in South Carolina's state capital and welcomed a new governor. Inaugurated only two hours after the secession convention convened, into the fray strode Governor Francis Pickens. The South Carolina legislature had selected him after seven ballots, narrowly defeating Robert Barnwell Rett Jr., who coveted the position and opportunity. Inheritance and shrewd investment prompted Pickens' rise. He owned several Edgefield district plantations and had residences in Alabama and Mississippi. In 1847, and 42 years of age, he owned 417 slaves. Pickens' demeanor exuded the planter's curious mix of generosity, charm, and culture with arrogance, pride, imperiousness, and moody disposition. His rhetoric fired a crowd, but his personality lacked warmth necessary to draw men to him. And he was keenly aware of that when he wrote, I believe it my destiny to be disliked by all who know me well. This was not his first journey down the road to secession. A cousin of John C. Calhoun, he had been in the nullification fight back in 1832-33. Then, 
John Quincy Adams dismissed him as a classic example of the South Carolina school of orator statesmen, pompous, flashy, and shallow. A stout man with flabby features, watery eyes, and bewigged head, he told the legislature, I would be willing to appeal to the god of battles, if need be, to cover the state with ruin, conflagration, and blood rather than submit. Within hours of his rainy inauguration, he wrote his old friend, James Buchanan, as one executive to another, insisting that all work on U.S. forts in South Carolina should stop, no federal reinforcements should be sent, and asked approval to place South Carolina state troops in still-under-construction Fort Sumter. There were others of the same stripe who made up the convention. Of those gathered in the Baptist Church on the 17th in Columbia, there were James Chestnut, Robert Barnwell Rett, John Manning. Yet amidst all the excitement and drama, an event dampened the mood and mind of those assembled. It was learned that smallpox had broken out in Columbia, and rumor had it that contaminated rags from New York were the cause. Delegates voted to adjourn and move to a new site. Oh, and one last thing to do. That evening, they passed resolutions approving secession and drafting an ordinance. The vote... 159 to zero. Next morning, rickety trains pushed through the rain carrying delegates to Charleston, which itself had had a yellow fever outbreak back in 1858, and it claimed 700 lives. Indeed, the man who designed New York City's Central Park, Frederick Law Olmsted, labeled the city the worst climate for unacclimated whites of any town in the United States. Even South Carolinian James Chestnut called it a city of arrogance and doom. In essence, Charleston was a city-state, and oligarchy reigned as evidenced by the fact that only 155 of the some 40,500 that lived there owned half of the city's wealth in 1860. The city's blend of ancestor worship and stifling custom made it a municipal cousin to Boston. The difference, as one put it, a Boston gentleman looked as if he knew everything, while a South Carolinian, and particularly a Charleston gentleman, looked as if he knew everything worthwhile for a gentleman to know. The chivalry here was inbred, interlocked by blood and shared values, to tolerate or deviate from norms they deem proper for a superior class. It is interesting to note that though they scorned Yankees as worshipers of the mighty dollar, they themselves spent lavishly. And with all that pride, there was, of course, the important matter of personal honor. So much so, there was a small park near the post office, which was quite popular for those trying to satisfy honor. Once, two residents of Laguerre Street stood in open upstairs windows and fired at one another. Now, no question, 
The place was steeped in history. History literally dripped from the city's pastel walls. So many events and stories from a city and colony state that at one time practiced tolerance. In fact, back in its colonial history, no colony save Pennsylvania had a more diversified people than South Carolina. First came English settlers in 1670, and soon thereafter French Huguenots. Then followed Scots, both high and low, Dutch, Swiss, Germans, Jews, and even enough Northerners to found a New England society. And, oh yes, slaves. So many that as early as 1724, slaves outnumbered whites in the low country by a three-to-one margin. They were there, for the most part, to service the rice plantations, the same rice plantations that gave rise to the great families which ruled the most oligarchical colony in America. Nowhere else in America did so few exert so much social, political, and economic power. For example, at one point in time, only South Carolina had property requirements for holding office. A legislator in the lower house had to own property valued at least 150 pounds sterling, 300 to qualify for the state senate. Therefore, planters controlled the legislature, and the legislature controlled everything else. The legislature appointed judges, the governor, and most other state officials, even presidential electors. And the elite seemed to ignore the way their colony, then state, sacrificed creativity for order and diversity for exclusiveness. From 1830 to 1860, those 30 years, South Carolina had steered a maverick course. And now Lincoln's election drove to the surface, all just mentioned. And the city exuding this narrow order and regional exclusiveness was indeed South Carolina's most prominent city. Founded in 1670, the city took its name from Charles II of England. Its two main geographical features, the Ashley and Cooper Rivers, named for Lord Proprietor Anthony Ashley Cooper. Twenty years later, it was the fifth largest city in North America. By 1770, 11,000 lived there, slightly more than half slaves. At that time, it was rice, indigo, and naval stores, tar, pitch, and turpentine that made the port the fourth largest in the colonies behind Boston, New York City, and Philadelphia. The city's early tolerance meant it was a haven for the religiously oppressed. French Huguenots felt comfortable here. Charleston was one of the first to allow Jews to worship, and its tolerance bred innovation. In 1736, the Dock Street Theater was the colony's first building designed specifically for theater. On January the 12th, 1773, the first American museum opened. During the War for Independence, the city was twice attacked by the British. First, unsuccessfully on June the 28th, 1776, when Henry Clinton's British fleet and some 2,000 troops were repulsed from what would become Fort Moultrie, the thick 
wet palmetto logs of the fort neutralizing the effect of cannon fire and therefore sparking its inclusion on South Carolina's state flag and even its nickname. Clinton returned in 1780 with 14,000 and defeated General Benjamin Lincoln's American force of 5,400. Clinton then left and gave command of the area to the Lord Cornwallis, who moved into the interior with some 8,000 men. The British remained in Charleston until December of 1782, and with their evacuation in 1783, Charlestown became Charleston. Ten years later, the cotton gin's invention transformed not only the city, but the entire South. Cotton now became the cash crop, and that intensified the use of slave labor. By 1820, 23,000 mostly black made Charleston their home. By 1840, it was among the 10 most populated in the United States. A thriving city, its commercial heart began just above Broad Street, where one could find nine banks, 14 grist and six rice mills, commission merchants, lawyers, import houses, auctioneers, brokers, six iron foundries, six turpentine distilleries, six factories for making blinds, sashes, and doors, a railroad machine shop, sawmills, and factories for making umbrellas, cordage, and hats. It was to this bustling municipality that in April of 1860, the Democratic Convention attempted to nominate a candidate. But by then, once tolerant South Carolina and Charleston had become bastions for intolerance. Now, it was a proud city in a proud state dominated by a proud aristocracy. And it was into this realm that trains filled with secession delegates approached on Tuesday, the 18th of December. And as they did, the South Carolina Marine artillery fired 15 gun salutes. By 4 p.m., all had convened at Institute Hall. There, amongst them, working undercover, a reporter for Horace Greeley's New York Tribune. Business carried over to Wednesday, the 19th. By then, all had moved to the smaller and more intimate St. Andrew's Hall, where secret sessions could remain just that, secret. Outside, people tried to pour in from everywhere, all to be able to say that they were there when history was made. Offering support, Governor Andrew B. Moore of Alabama sent a note. Tell the convention to listen to no propositions of compromise or delay. There were others who did more than send notes. Noted agriculturalist Virginian Edmund Ruffin had actually prayed that Lincoln would be elected. Obsessed with being in Charleston, he left the Richmond area December the 17th, despite nine inches of snow and the news of the death of his own daughter Elizabeth. He arrived early the 19th, checked into the Charleston Hotel, where events raced. On Thursday the 20th, delegates convened at noon. Just before 1 p.m., the Ordinance of Secession was presented, and at precisely 1.07, the roll call began. Names called in alphabetical order. 
each delegate answering for secession with an I. By 1.15 or so, the last name was called and the vote recorded. It was unanimous, 169 to zero. While the bells of St. Michael's pealed in celebration, an artillery salute rumbled from the Citadel. From the Charleston Mercury, a special edition hit the streets. The Union is dissolved. Businesses closed for the day. Though only five days before Christmas, in Charleston, South Carolina, it felt like the 4th of July. And indeed, many believed in South Carolina that this was the Second American Revolution. After the afternoon session adjourned, St. Michael's bells tolled several tunes. One was Auld Lang Syne. At 6.30, all the delegates met again, this time to formally sign the ordinance. Fifteen minutes after the gather, they emerged in formal procession. Two lines of men with arms locked as they moved in silence to Institute Hall, now tabbed Secession Hall. Inside, some 3,000 people waited to witness the deed. Governor Pickens and the entire legislature had been invited. Even Caleb Cushing, an emissary from President Buchanan, although with good reason, he chose not to attend. While all stood with bared heads, a Dr. Bachman prayed. Then convention president David F. Jameson read the ordinance. We, the people of the state of South Carolina, in convention assembled, do declare and ordain, and it is hereby declared and ordained, that the ordinance adopted by us in convention on the 23rd day of May in the year of our Lord, 1788, whereby the Constitution of the United States of America was ratified, and also all acts and parts of acts of the General Assembly of this state ratifying the amendments of the said Constitution are hereby repealed, and that the union now subsisting between South Carolina and other states under the name of the United States of America, is hereby dissolved. On the last word, dissolved, the hall erupted. An alphabetical order of districts represented each signed the document with a massive golden pen. It took some two hours. With seal set and signatures affixed, Jameson may well have taken up his gavel. It was one specially made for the occasion, polished ivory, cleverly chased with a handle made of ebony, and engraved in its head in black letters, secession. Then he announced, I proclaim the state of South Carolina an independent commonwealth. Now the entire city of Charleston exploded. There were bands, wild cheers, liberty poles, palmetto and new flags, blue secession cockades, pistol shots, bonfires. Amidst the riotous scene, one of the few unionists that day in the city, South Carolina Judge James Pettigrew and a friend, C.S. Bryan, encountered a celebrating citizen on Broad Street. 
To Pettigrew's question about all the hubbub, where's the fire? He was told, there is no fire. Those are the joy bells ringing in honor of the passage of the ordinance of secession. And to that, Pettigrew spat back, I tell you, indeed, there is a fire. They have this day set a blazing torch to the temple of constitutional liberty. And please, God, we shall have no more peace forever. Meanwhile, the news raced like wildfire. Bells rang across the south. Cannons roared in New Orleans, Savannah, Augusta, Portsmouth, Montgomery, Pensacola, Mobile, Wilmington, Charlotte. Up in New York City, the news staggered the stock market. And now, faced with uncertain times, business ventures were disrupted. Again, the timing so strange, the papers full of Christmas advertising. In the nation's capital, the Telegraph brought the news to Congress about 2 p.m., and it hit like a thunderbolt. Both houses were in session. While business was momentarily suspended in both houses, Southern members raced forward to congratulate those who represented South Carolina. An equally stunned President Buchanan believed no state could secede. But if one did, the federal government could do nothing to force it back. Philosophically, handcuffed. Out west at the corner of 8th and Jackson Streets in Springfield, Illinois, the New York Times reported that the president-elect took the news calmly. For those few in Charleston and federal military blue, there was the harrowing realization that now they were an island. Those men were under the command of a Kentuckian, Major Robert Anderson. December the 20th was the anniversary of Anderson's first month of duty at Fort Moultrie. Understandably, he and his staff wired for reinforcements and policy clarification. One can only imagine how alone Anderson and his small force felt. Fearing a takeover by land at Fort Moultrie, Anderson moved the night of the 25th, 26th of December to unfinished Fort Sumter and brought along four months of provisions. The move brought immediate reaction in South Carolina and bought floundering politicians some time, but that was running out quickly. You see, the air was alive with rebellion, and one Charlestonian said as such when he left a note in front of the door to the offices of the pro-secessionist Charleston Mercury. It read, One voice and millions of strong arms to uphold the honor of South Carolina. And the paper added to the sentiment when it tried to put December 20th in historical perspective. Dated the day the Ordinance of Secession was approved and signed, the Mercury published, Inscribed among the calends of the world, memorable in time to come the 20th day of December, and the year of our Lord 1860 has become an epic in the history of the human race. A great Confederate Republic, overwrought with arrogant and tyrannous oppression, has fallen from its high estate amongst the nations of the earth. Conservative liberty has been vindicated. Mobocratic license has been stricken down. Order has conquered, yet liberty has survived. Right has raised his banner aloft and bidden defiance to might. 
problem of self-government under the check balance of slavery has secured itself from threatened destruction. South Carolina has resumed her entire sovereign powers and unshackled has become one of the nations of the earth. The next day, the 21st, there was the business of setting up a new nation. Four committees were created. Relations with other slaveholding states, foreign relations, commercial and postal relations. A constitution had to be written. Three commissioners were sent to Washington City to negotiate for the federal forts. There, the Senate's committee of 13 met to try to create compromise. The committee lasted one week. During that time, six potential constitutional amendments and four congressional resolutions were introduced, but they all came apart. In essence, the committee found they could only agree on one thing, that it could not reach any form of agreement and reported such back to the Senate. On Monday, the day before Christmas, celebration continued in Charleston, and it included black and white. Charlestonian Caroline Gilman saw one black man shouting and celebrating, and she asked him, what's the matter? And he answered, I don't know, miss, I don't know. And he went back to dancing. In another home, one black man asked, what time will the secession pass by, Mama? It would be a deep and prophetic question. The ramifications of December the 20th came home out in Charleston Harbor three and a half months later. And precisely at 4.30 in the morning of April the 12th, 1861, the Charleston Mercury had been correct. The events of Thursday, December the 20th, 1860, in the city of Charleston, South Carolina, would indeed be remembered for the devastating whirlwind it would reap. Yet on that day, no one could possibly anticipate what was to come. Many expected secession to be peaceful. And yes, there actually were some across the nation that were pleased with South Carolina's act. Good luck and good riddance. But we know, in historical hindsight, we know the havoc that befell 31 million Americans. They could not begin to imagine, but we know all too well what South Carolina's secession meant, for we have its consequences burned into the nightmares of our national consciousness. We know that the resulting American Civil War would take southern towns and cities and turn them into blackened ghost towns. It would take the American landscape, its fields and pastures, and turn them into harvest of death. It would take present and future leaders both north and south and waste them away. And it would take the very flower of our nation's manhood and put them under the earth forever. In Charleston, South Carolina, the great grinding wheel now began to turn. Only five days before Christmas, in the year 1860, the 20th of December, on another day that, if you will, lives in infamy.
when next we gather, a two-part episode recounting one of the most remarkable and controversial figures from the American Civil War. The Confederate officer that prompted Major General William T. Sherman to spit out in frustration, that devil must be hunted down and killed if it costs 10,000 lives and bankrupts the federal treasury. And yet, reflecting on his military prowess, that same Union officer admitted that the devil was, in his words, the most remarkable man the Civil War produced on either side. Today, respected, admired, and also in the same breath, despised and hated. Next time, we tell the story of the man who to this day is a lightning rod for passionate reaction, both pro and con, the so-called wizard of the saddle, Nathan Bedford Forrest. In the meantime, a sincere wish that you will continue to be responsible and safe, and yes, happiest of holidays. And here's to a hopefully healthier and kinder new year. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.